when we think about two friends that have, that have hung together and been together and grown together and yet have a disagreement that turns into an argument, that turns into estrangement. Now it's too awkward to communicate. It's, it's too painful to, to move back toward each other. What they need to experience is reconciliation. A fresh harmony and restoration in their relationship. When it comes to our spiritual life, we, as sinners separated from a holy and perfect God, if we are going to have a relationship with him and go to heaven for eternity with him, then we need reconciliation. And reconciliation, spiritual reconciliation with the God of the universe comes one way and through one person, the person of Jesus and the receiving of the gift of salvation. Reconciliation is more than just what happens, hopefully, every month on your checking account. It really is a key spiritual, biblical theological word that we need to understand. And Paul drives that home with the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter 1. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick up together in verse number 19. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 19. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And by him, still talking about Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. That's speaking of God the Father. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, of which I, Paul, became a minister." As we think of this picture in Colossians chapter 1, we understand and recognize that we must be reconciled. And with that, let's pray. God, speak to us today. And Lord, move in our hearts and drive home the truth of who you are and how that process, that glorious picture of how reconciliation takes place. In your name, amen. Colossians chapter 1, as we look through this long theme, beginning with verse number 15, as we get this theme built around the person of Christ, Paul now is going to tell us that God is going to use Jesus to reconcile. Notice verse number 19, where it says, all things to himself. Now, because of the fall of man, everything in the whole universe was impacted. 
So there is a picture that because of the fall, not only are we separated from God, but there is a part in humanity and beyond humanity in nature that needs to be made right with God. And so that's why he picks up on this theme in verse number 19, that uh, in verse number 20, by him to reconcile all things to himself. We sing the song, Joy to the World at Christmas Time. And we think of the first coming of Jesus. That song was indeed written by not only one who wrote a, a, a great hymn there, but it was written by a great theologian named Isaac Watts. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And notice what he says. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Then what does he do? He points then not only to, to men employing, imploring their songs, he says, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Again, talking to nature. And then a verse that we most times skip, but we just go on to he rules the world. But the verse that we skip, the third verse, which is, I don't know why Baptists always skip the third verse. But anyway, no more let sins And sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Now notice that last phrase. Far as the curse is found. There is a day in which all of the natural world, all of earth is going to be made right with God. And can I tell you, joy to the world is not really a song about Jesus' first coming. It's about his second, all right? So hate to ruin Christmas or anything like that, but that song is Jesus coming again to reconcile all things to himself, to make everything and all of nature right again. You remember in Genesis 1 when God created, everything was good and the creation of man was very good. But now everything because of the fall has been tainted under the curse. But one day everything is going to be made right. So Paul begins with this broad stroke and says, through Jesus, God is going to make everything right one day. But then he drives it home specifically and says, but man needs to be made right right now. And this is how that can happen. So we see in verses 19 and 20, he deals with this broad picture of reconciliation. Then in verses 21 through 23, he deals with this narrow picture of saying, and this is how man can be reconciled to God. And it's only one way through Jesus. So first off, as we think about this picture of reconciliation, let's think about the process of reconciliation. There's a process that has to happen in order for one to be reconciled. Did you know most people think that their relationship with God is cordial? I'm on, a, I'm on pretty good terms with, with God. I mean, you know, I've not robbed any banks or killed anybody. So, hey, we're good. At the worst, most people think that their relationship with God is neutral. Like, 
I've not really done anything too bad against him, and I'm just kind of living my life, and so we're just kind of neutral here. But can I tell you, the picture in the Bible shows us that man is not cordial and man is not neutral in his relationship with God. That's why we need reconciliation. Now, notice the pictures that he gives in verse number uh, 21, and he shows us this need that we have for reconciliation. Notice what he says. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind. Our need for reconciliation comes from the fact that we in and of ourselves are alienated from God in our sins. So that as he writes to this church, he says, you were alienated or we were alienated from God. That means that we were outside the sphere of God's blessing, that we were outside the family of God, outside the citizenship of of God's kingdom, that we were on the outside of that. We're not part of God's family because of our nature to sin and our actions and willfulness to sin. We are outside of this fear of God's blessing and family. And then he takes it a step further and he says, you're not only an alien, a foreigner, an outsider to God's kingdom and God's family, but you're actually, and we were actually enemies of God. What a vast difference than those who think, you know, I'm just kind of living my life and, you know, I'm all good with the man upstairs kind of attitude. The picture is, is that we are alien and alienated from God because he is absolutely holy. And we have thought many things, said many things, done many things that have disqualified us from God's family, God's kingdom, and God's place in heaven forever. And we are enemies because when God has told us and instructed us, we've said, no, I'm going to do it my way. No, I want to go my way. Even from a young childhood, where where it tells us in, in the Old Testament, and then Paul repeats it to the church at Ephesus in the New Testament, where he says, children, you're to obey your parents. There have been times that, you know, mom and dad may not have been looking, but we thought, no way, I'm not doing what mom and dad said. The picture is, is that we are alienated from God because of our sin, and we're his enemy. Now, notice back in the book of Romans, because Paul drives this home in in Romans chapter 5 very well. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 6. He gives this great picture, and again, it's not how people perceive themselves today. He says in Romans 5, 6, For when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And you know what people think today? I have the strength to, to make sure that all the good things I do outweigh the bad things that I've done in my own strength and in my own will and through my own good works. And so I can get to heaven on my own. And Paul says, you were without strength. You were ungodly. When we were without strength, it tells us, that in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he goes on and says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but perhaps for a, a good man, one might even dare to die. Someone might give their life for a good guy, but then he says this in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners. Oh, man speaking with someone earlier this week, and 
They were saying, you know, I've taught the Bible and preached the Bible and shared the Bible, and now someone has, has uh, said, you know, uh, that, that I'm too harsh and I'm too rough. And he said, I've not done that in, in a sense of meanness. But everybody feels like, you know, uh, you're using the Bible to, to push, push, push. And can I tell you, the Bible just says it right there. You're a sinner. If you don't like it, don't shoot the messenger. It's God's message that you're without strength, that you're ungodly. But he goes on in verse number 9 and 10, where he says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And then he says in verse number 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Oh, there's that word reconciled again. He says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled that Jesus came and brought harmony. So we see this process at place. And step number one in this process is we have to understand our need for reconciliation. Secondly, what are the means of reconciliation? If I'm down here and I'm going to have a relationship with a holy God, how is that going to happen? Well, he tells us how that's going to happen. Notice back in verse number 19, where it tells us that in God, all the fullness of his deity dwelt in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he says in verse number 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. The means of reconciliation is through Jesus Christ, God's son. There's only one way to be reconciled to God. It's not by doing good works. It's not by doing spiritual things. It's not by being baptized. It's not by taking the Lord's Supper. It's not by church attendance. It's not by good works. It's not by giving. It's not by serving. It's one way through the son. And what did the son do? Notice what it says at the end of verse number 20 having made peace through the blood of his cross. Notice verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. What's the picture? Jesus died. It is through the Son and through the cross that we come to the place where we're reconciled to God. So here's the picture. I'm here. I've sinned. I'm alienated and separated from God. The next picture, God sends his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty, to take the punishment for my sin. Kent Hughes was a pastor in Illinois and he tells the story about a a couple and they had uh, been married and, and went through rough patches and they separated. The husband moved to a different city. He began to to work, do, live his life, fell out of communication altogether with his wife, and they just kind of lived. He had a business trip that took him back home. And while he was back home, he decided he would go to the graveside where their son was buried. And there, while he was there, just reflecting and reminiscing, at the cemetery, at the graveside of his son. He said he heard a rustle behind him, and upcoming was his wife, who he was estranged from. And right there, they clasped hands and were reconciled. It is through the death of Jesus that we're reconciled to God. So we see our need 
and we see the means. But then let's, let's think about this picture of the power of reconciliation. What does God do that so awesomely changes our life? So here's what happens. Notice, notice with me in, in Colossians chapter, chapter 1. In the verse 22, in the body of his flesh, through death, Jesus died on the cross. Now notice what he says, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. This is what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he took the punishment for all of our sin. Notice in Colossians 2.13, he says that he has forgiven us all of our our trespasses. And when he died on the cross, and when we're here, and we look to the cross and say, Jesus, I believe that you took my sin penalty, that you died to cover my sin, that you are the only way that I can receive forgiveness and eternal life. Then at that moment, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone, this is what happens. The Bible tells us in in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, on the cross to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So at that moment, when I pray and trust what Jesus did on the cross, recognizing he is not dead anymore, but he rose from the, from the grave, that at that moment, God takes all of my sin and washes all of it away. It's all gone. And at that moment, he not only takes all of that sin and washes it away, but he takes all of the righteousness of Jesus and he says, I'm going to put that on your account. I've shared this many times, but we just need to hear it again. If you're in a document, a Word document, and you hit, uh, you write down every bad thing you've ever done in your whole life, which you couldn't even do on a computer, but if you could, and you could pull it up and, and, and have it written on your screen, and you could, you could uh, scroll over all of that, highlight it, and hit the word cut, you could then take it over and paste it on the cross. That's what Jesus did. So that there's no more record on the computer of anything I've done wrong. It's all been taken and cut and placed on Jesus. Now, at the same time, God is taking all of the righteousness of Jesus, and he is highlighting all of Jesus' righteousness, and he's hitting copy. And then he takes all of the righteousness of Jesus, and he places that on my account. That's the picture of what happens when one comes to receive Jesus as their Savior. When one says, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. And he rose again. Jesus, forgive me. I trust you alone. Come into my life. At that moment, there is this heavenly transaction that brings about the needy person, having met the means of reconciliation, now experiences the power of reconciliation so that now, notice what the passage says, he is presented before God holy. He is presented before God 
blameless, and he is presented before God above reproach. The word holy gives the picture of being separated to God. That means that all of Jesus' righteousness, as God looks down upon me in heaven, God sees all of Jesus' righteousness and holiness and says, look, you're reconciled to me because of Jesus. You are holy. The word blameless gives the picture of an Old Testament sacrifice. Remember, they were to pick a a lamb that was without blemish so that God now sees us without blemish. That's how he sees us now. And then above reproach, I love this picture. That, that gives the picture of without accusations against us. There are no accusations against us. That our sin has already been cut and pasted to the cross. But Revelation chapter 12 and verse number 10 says that, that the devil, Satan, is an accuser of the brethren. So this is what he does. He says, I remember what you did back here. Do you remember that? I remember when you did this. I remember when you said that. I remember when you acted like that. So what do you do then? Do you live in guilt and shame over the past? No, let me tell you what to do. Before God, you're pictured as holy and blameless and without accusation, above reproach. So you just take the devil back to the cross. When Jesus said it is finished, that meant the price was paid in full. When Jesus died on the cross, his death on the cross was absolutely sufficient. So you just say, devil, you know, I don't have to believe that. I I can go back to to the cross and, and just go back to the cross and thank God for the cross. Sing about the cross. Oh, the blood of Jesus that washes white as snow. And just play over that in your heart and mind. Down at the cross where my Savior died. Sing it. Pray it. Thank God for the cross. Go back to the cross and have a holy moment of worship so that when the accuser begins to fish up the old stuff from the past, just go back to the cross and worship again. And as you go back to the cross and worship, you're going to find you're just even that much more grateful for what Jesus has done for you. And this process of reconciliation so that he has taken me alienated in an enemy. And through Jesus coming now, God sees me as holy and blameless and above reproach. And also, listen, this ought to be a challenge to us in our life. That if God would look down upon us and say, the righteousness of Jesus is on his account or is on her account, that we ought to try to live up to that as believers. That's part of the challenge of our life. God already sees us this way through Christ. But we need to try to live up to this so that the world can see Jesus in us and through us. That's the process of reconciliation. What's the proof of reconciliation? Let's move quickly together. As we think about the proof of reconciliation, notice what he says in verse number 23. Now, you've been reconciled now. Now, notice in verse number 20 how it says, and by him to reconcile. And then in verse number 21, he says, now he has reconciled. He's writing to believers. He says, you know what? Everybody needs to be reconciled, but now you have been reconciled. That's the picture. It's something. They have been saved. So now he says, let me show you some proofs that really show it's genuine in your life. Notice verse number 23, and it begins with the word if, which gives a picture of, oh man, if I do this, if I hold on to my salvation, that's not the picture at all. You take that Greek word if, and it is the same word as the word in the Greek since. And it gives a picture of since 
God has worked in my life, forgiven me of sin, called me holy, blameless, and above reproach. What do I want to do? What's the outcome of that? He says, since you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the gospel. What's the picture? The proof of reconciliation is first a growing faith. He he gives that picture in verse number uh, 23. You're continuing in the faith. There's not only the picture of a, of a growing faith that, that he who began a good work in you is going to, to carry it on to completion, but there is a grounded faith that is there. Notice the picture of this grounding of the faith, that it is, we're continuing in the faith grounded and steadfast. In this day, the, the Roman philosophers were saying, look, Jesus is just a way. You can take Jesus plus all of these other isms and you're okay. And the Jewish legalists were going to come in and say, look, yeah, Jesus following good, but you've got to keep the law over here. And the picture is, is that a grounded faith says Jesus paid it all. That's the picture. So the growing faith means I'm growing in my relationship with Christ and I'm grounded in the fact that it is Jesus alone that has purchased my salvation and brought reconciliation for me. It's not by my works, my actions, my deeds. Jesus is not a way, he is the way. And it's not Jesus plus anything. My faith has found a resting place in Jesus Christ alone as the only way for my sin to be forgiven, my relationship with God to be restored, and my walk with God to be right. There's the proof. But let's think thirdly about this purpose of reconciliation. What's the purpose of reconciliation? As we think about the purpose, notice back up in that first verse, for it pleased the Father and in him that all the fullness should dwell in Christ and and by him to reconcile all things Reconciliation means that I can live in a a relationship with the Almighty God. It means I can know God's in my life. I can know God's presence is in my life, that God's favor is upon me, that I'm in his family, I'm not separated, that even through the hard times, there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. God loves me. His wrath has been paid for, for my sin on the cross when Jesus died. God sees me now as holy, blameless, above reproach, and he walks with me every day. You could experience God's presence in your life. Matter of fact, James chapter four tells us that if we'll draw near to God, he'll draw near to us and that we could experience the fullness. We can experience more of his presence in the future because we're drawing and seeking him with more diligence. Secondly, that I can not only live in a relationship with God, but, but I can live with this sense of hope in the gospel. Notice with me, as we, we we're looking at in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The good news of Jesus gives us hope. Hope for today. Hope for eternity. What more hope do you need than the message of the gospel? I've been reconciled to God. I'm right with God because of Jesus. I'm growing in God because of Jesus. I'll have eternity with God because of Jesus. But notice, Paul, as he he ends this section, says this. He says, this gospel or this, this picture, which was preached to every creature under heaven, and notice what he says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. We're reconciled, means that I, I live to serve God. Notice Paul says that I became a 
a minister. The word that is used there is the word diakonos. It's from the word we get deacon, one who is to serve, wait tables. I read a story, mission story years ago, about an underdeveloped nation, and they had set up a Christian hospital. The government had set up a hospital closer to one of the villages, and there were people that decided instead of going to the government hospital, they would walk 15 miles to go to the Christian hospital. And the Christian doctor asked, why, why do you come 15 miles out of your way to come to the Christian hospital when the government hospital has the same medicine? And they said this, the medicine is the same, but the hands are different. That's a message of God in our life. Not only that I'm reconciled to God, but now I'm an ambassador and I am to help others in that path to be reconciled to God as well. That's part of our calling. So I ask you today, have you been reconciled to God? Maybe somewhere just over the last weeks, months, You've just got off track in your relationship with God. And as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, Paul gives a warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he, he warns the church and, and says, whoever eats or drinks of the cup of, uh, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, he says, you know, if you're, you're talking one thing and, and, and you're professing Jesus over here and things are, are not reconciled in your own life, he, he goes on to say, for this reason, he says, many are, are weak and sick. And he says, some have even, they sleep. So he says that each one in verse 27 needs to examine himself. So I ask you today, Are you ready to examine yourself to see where your heart is before the Lord?